0: I think that was kind of an appropriate little um, experimental interpretation (laughs) of the kind of uh, music from the culture that I'm going to be talking about in this episode. I was listening to some examples of their music and I just kind of started playing guitar a few minutes ago, (laughs) just trying to like... uh, uh, play something that sounded something like what they were playing and it's something like that. Anyway, so I'll explain. Uh, So welcome to another episode. Um, So this episode, thirsty already. Um, In the second last episode, I did a whole episode on the Middle Ages and I did that because in future episodes, I plan on doing episodes on particular people from the Middle Ages. And so just as a basic introduction um, or kind of a, a revision of that period of history for anyone who has maybe never encountered it, uh, or maybe if you're not from Europe, or um, if you've kind of forgotten it or, ha- are, or are hazy on it. So that's why I did that episode. Um Yeah, just so people have a basic understanding of that period. Um, And then I was thinking, okay, so another place and time that I'm going to do probably a lot of episodes on is ancient Greece. Because, yeah, ancient Greece, we have so many things we've taken from ancient Greece. Europe is founded on things from ancient Greece. So I was thinking, okay, yeah, I should definitely do an episode. which is like an introduction into ancient Greece as well. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, but ancient Greece isn't like the beginning, isn't a beginning point. There was cultures that influenced, that were before ancient Greece, that influenced ancient Greece. And ancient Greece took those influences and developed them and then Worked itself up to its level, which we all, you know, which is, is uh, which became very um, important for us. So, for example, back in the time of Alexander the Great, um, who was really the first person to unite all of um, Greece, um, in his day, before he carved out his empire, in his day there was a civilization. Well, in his day, there was two at least. Um, but I'm going to be looking at one in particular in this episode. There was one civilization that was as old to Greece, to ancient Greece, as ancient Greece is to us. So there was, to him, there was this civilization that was like thousands of years old. And in actual fact, now it can be traced back to five 1000 uh 300 years roughly before uh before the greeks so this is like 7300 years old roughly this civilization that i'm talking about um so yeah this this civilization gave a lot to greece um and i was thinking because i'm going back quite far here i just would like to put things in perspective um Like humans. The the earliest we're all supposed to have um, come from a type of chimpanzee that started uh, standing upright, first of all, and they they called this uh, chimpanzee humanoid type thing um, Homo erectus. And it was roughly something like a million years ago that this started happening. And then about 400,000 years ago um the next kind of variety of early humans started manipulating fire and they and this kind of this technology of manipulating fire really changed changed everything um for example they would be able to start living in caves because they could go in and like um, clear out the cave with with fire first, apparently when they start cooking their their meat um, it made proteins and minerals more available it made um, so that they could digest and abs- um, what's the word abstract these um, vitamins and minerals from from the food more easily so it required less less chewing so uh, there's theories that this is how the human brain. Uh, evolved because it got more proteins than it was used to from a hunter-gatherer or from just foraging. And then when they started cooking the meat, it it changed the the food so that we could get more of the nutrients from the food. Um, So just speaking of this period when humans discovered fire, uh, recently a friend um, showed me a film. Um, about this period of of uh, human history. And it's just an amazing film. I'm not sure when it's made, like the 1980s or something like that. It's called The Quest for Fire. And it's just, I mean, you know, there's no speaking in it. It's these early humans that are trying to f- trying to uh, understand fire. And then there's this other tribe. You know, I won't give it away, actually. But it's just a fantastic film. Um yeah, I really can't praise it enough. Um, if you've ever seen the film 2001: Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, it's another fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, it's a classic. You should check it out if you if you want to if you like films. Um, but at the start of that film, if you have seen it, you'll remember the scene where it's like these early chimpanzee human humanoid creatures, um, and I can't remember now. Is it are they around the water? Are they around a water pool and then another group of the of the humanoids comes over and they're fighting then for the for the water or are they around the 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 monoliths a bit hazy on that now, but anyway you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the film um so they're 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 early humans and they're fighting over this i think it's I think it's water and they they use the first like weapon they pick up is it a bone or a stick or something and then there's that classic, uh, iconic um, match cut, I believe is the technical term for that um, That editing where the the weapon is, tro- is thrown up into the air and it's spinning in slow motion and then it cuts from that being the first kind of, um, the the earliest tool that, you know, proto-humans used. There's a match cut from that spinning weapon in the air and then it turns into a satellite in the sky and that's where like, you know, in Kubrick's day, that's where like the cutting edge of technology was because now we're actually in the sky ourselves. Anyway, I'm just I'm just saying that the start of that film um, is quite similar to this film I'm talking about, The Quest for Fire, because it's just all about um, yeah, it's a fantastic film. <laughs> just just check it out. I won't go on about it too much more, but i I'm just uh, mentioning that period of human evolution. So, so this is a very good film that has depicted it. Really, 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 in a brilliant Uh, way—the quest for fire. Um, So then, about two hundred and fifty thousand years ago, after they discover fire, they've been manipulating fire for a long time. Then they start forming uh, stone tools, uh, axes, and they start by they flake off the bits of the. Of the stone to make it more sharp, and then next we have the Neanderthal man, which is about a hundred thousand years ago to about thirty thousand years ago, and then we have Cro-Magnon man, which is thirty-five thousand years ago, and then after them we have Homo sapiens. And I'm saying all this just to put it in perspective, because the next period is known as the Neolithic Revolution. The Neolithic Revolution. And that happened 10,000 years ago. So I said that this civilization that I'm talking about, they started roughly 5000 years ago. So the Neolithic Revolution was essentially agriculture. They stopped being hunter-gatherers and they settle. And the earliest known settlements that historians have found in the world is this civilization that I'm referring to um, as being one of the influences for the Greeks. And this civilization is in the area that we call Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia is a Greek word That means land between two rivers. And where are these two rivers? So the Taurus Mountains in the southeast of Turkey, um, that is the source, the starting point of these two rivers. And these two rivers flow down into the Persian Gulf. So this is the land to the east of Syria, like on the east Coast of the Mediterranean below Turkey, and then if you go over to the east, this is where these two rivers are flowing, um, and this area it used to flood a lot um, from all the water from the from the Taurus Mountains, and so therefore this river was really mineralized, um, and all of this mineralized water would go into would, when when the rivers flood. Um, like I think annually, um, it mineralized the water, mineralized the soil. So this was known as the Fertile Crescent. And actually it's called the Fertile Crescent because a crescent is like a moon shape. So this Fertile Crescent is this area with these two rivers going from the Taurus Mountains down in a diagonal kind of to the Persian Gulf. This is the area of, now it's called Iraq, all that kind of area. And then it's a crescent because it goes from, let's say, um, Iraq, it goes kind of up towards the Taurus Mountains, and then it goes left down towards um, Israel because there's more rivers there, with floodplains and stuff like that. Um, so this area is historically known as the Fertile Crescent because of all the flooding and the mineralized water. So, so these this fertile land was a perfect yeah perfect soil for these early. Um, farmers essentially to to settle because they must have noticed that uh, that the seeds like wheat and barley and stuff they they grew wild naturally Um, and people were eating them before they sowed them is what they say humans reaped before they sowed Uh, but what they know you know there's theories about it but one theory i heard is when they were eating these um Grains they noticed that wherever they kind of threw away the uneaten seeds, like later uh, new um, new what do you call them plants would grow up from where they um threw away those seeds, and so this area in Mesopotamia is yeah credited with being the earliest um uh site where humans settled and became essentially farmers Um, and the civilization there was basically in that area. There was a, there was a a race or a tribe called the Akkadians and they were the earliest known Semitic speaking people Um, and Semitic speaking people are the kind of early ancestors of um, Arabic, the Arabic language and uh, Hebrew. They're Semitic languages. Um, But then there is this other mysterious group of people, this other tribe, that came into that area as well, known as the Sumerians. And they're mysterious because they are what is classified as a a language isolate, meaning there's no other um, kind of... There's no real explanation as to where they came from. Their language isn't connected to the other people in that area another a modern day example of this is in spain in northern spain there's a region called the basque uh, country and this is another language isolate because the language there it isn't connected to any other european languages it's you know what's going on <laughs> what's going on there how did this language develop by itself it's very yes yeah, mysterious so um the Acadians were living in this area of Mesopotamia, and they had a bit of a civilization going on themselves. But then the Sumerians came in and kind of took over the place. Um, but later, then the Acadians Akari- kind of raised into a superior position, and then there was a then the Sumerians did again, and then another uh, the Assyrians, I think it was, then took over. And we're I'm speeding through centuries here, <laughs> up until it was then. I think the Medians was another one. And then the Chaldeans are in there somewhere. And then the Persians, um, there's also Babylonians in there. So yeah, lots of stuff happening in this Mesopotamian area. But I'm going to stick with the earliest one, which is the Sumerians. Um, Because these Sumerians, who I'm talking about as being a massive influence on the Greeks, they gave us so much. They were the first, they were the ones who... um, it's their civilization that's associated with being the earliest uh, farmers. And because they settled in a the place, they also developed architecture. And they actually even invented the wheel for carts and things like that. And because they were settled and the population was was booming because food supplies were more certain, in order to manage this population growth, they actually invented... Um, an early form of mathematics to keep track of everything and a writing system to uh yeah just to help keep track of everything and to know what's in what bags and stuff like this um the early writing that they that they devised that they created was like a pictogram uh writing later they did they did develop a a, a syllabic um uh kind of phonetic um uh alphabet um but yeah so they gave they gave us writing um they even gave us alcohol they 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 are the civilization <laughs> that introduced beer into the world um they had a kind of an a, a quite an advanced uh, medis- uh, medicine um they had the first law codes i mean they had the first cities they had the first um they were the first to talk about astronomy and astrology and the calendar and time, like for example sixty seconds what like why do we why do we use sixty seconds and this is actually sumerian as well and and the reason is because the way that they counted was if you put out your the uh, your hand and look at the palm of your hand with your fingers outstretched and if you take, if you look at your your pinky, your small finger. Okay, actually, I'll say it like this. So you look at your hand and then if you slightly bend your fingers. I've got to turn off my Wi-Fi there. Whoops. Um, if you slightly bend your fingers, you're going to see that there's three sections on each finger. So if you then take your thumb and point to the section on your pinky, which is closest, the section closest to the palm of your hand, that's one. And then the section in between... In the middle of your pinky, that's two. And then at the tip of your pinky, that's three. And then you go to the next finger down near the palm again, and then you count uh, four, five, six. And you go all the way through your fingers up until you get to 12. And then if you want to count beyond 12, you, on your other hand, you, let's say, put out your thumb to say that you've counted one round of 12. And then you can start counting again at 13, 14, 15. And then if you want to go above 24, you put up a second finger on your other hand. So we have 60 seconds because um, it's divisible by um, six. It's... um, yeah this, this is where it comes from. <laughs> it's not it's not intense. It's divisible by by 6. So anyway, this is where seconds comes from. This is where degrees comes from because once again 360 is devi- is uh divisible uh by 6. Um, so yeah, these Sumerians give us so, give us so much. Uh, anything else i 'm forgetting there yeah no that's that's the basic kind of introduction like there's a term that this culture was the cradle of civilization, and like it really is because they just gave us they gave us everything like agriculture, architecture laws mathematics uh philosophy everything uh so it it all starts with with the with this culture uh so yeah i just thought when i was reflecting on the greeks that hmm, where did their influences come from and i was like oh yeah the sumerians you know what (laughs) i'll put off the greeks for a minute and i'll uh go do this episode because it's uh yeah they gave us so much and what i'm gonna do in this episode is i'm gonna talk like their writing system i should explain um it wasn't on paper or it wasn't on parchment or it wasn't on papyrus papyrus is what the egyptians used it was uh the inner pith i believe of of the reed plant that grew in abundance around the, around around egypt um kind of woven together and then it was a like a page um but what the in, in the sumerian civilization apparently stone wasn't very, um, available there. So they built all of their buildings out of clay bricks. I mean, they had, they had an abundance of clay because it was a, a, it was a flood plain. So they had loads of clay from the river. Um, so they would take these, this clay, shape it and then bake it really hard. So then it's, it can, it can, you know, you can make bricks out of it. So, their writing system was actually on these clay, clay tablets. It's known as cuneiform, cuneiform. And they would take a brick, all different kind of sizes, from about the size of your phone to even smaller to maybe about the size of a book. Um, and they would get a, a reed. They would call it a reed stylus. That was like their pen. And they would kind of imprint their symbols on the clay and then bake it. And then... That's why we have their information still, because, you know, if it was just on paper, this is like, like, you know, 4,000 years ago or something. Would, would paper have lasted? Mm, probably not. So we're lucky that they, they wrote on this clay. You know, it was so durable. Um, what was, what should I say? What There was something maybe I wanted to say. Anyway, um, oh yeah, so this... This, this world, this civilization of, um, of Sumeria and Mesopotamia, it was really lost to the West only until the mid-19th century, around 1850 or something like that, when, a, um, when I think it was a, an archaeologist or a historian um, from Europe, he was in this area of Mesopotamia because he was looking for evidence of the cities that are mentioned in the Bible. He wanted to know, are these places actually real? And he did eventually discover uh, one of the cities. And in the city, he discovered like the ruins of one of these cities. And he found these uh, these cuneiform tablets. And then sometime later, someone cracked them. And then we have the myths and we have the stories and we have the documents and we have letters from this ancient civilization. So what I'm going to do in this episode is talk about three myths from this uh, civilization to kind of let this civilization explain itself. (laughs) Um, And um, the three I've picked, okay, I have a book called Myths from Mesopotamia, and it has quite a good few uh, stories and poems and myths from that period. But I've picked just three because mm, they're kind of the best known. Um, the thing is, I'm not sure which was actually written first, but I'm going to do them in a particular order because it makes perfect sense. Because the first one I've I've chosen, it's about it's called the Epic of Creation. So it's about how the world and everything was created. And then the next one um, is the epic of how humanity was created. And then the next one, uh, the last one I'm going to do, is basically the kind of epic of man. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to get into this. Um, so I think I can basically just start with the first one now. And I'll just say, like, I had read the the third um Uh, myth um, a few years ago. It's called The Epic of Gilgamesh. Maybe you've heard of it. It's quite well known now. So I'd read that a few years ago and I was really amazed by it. It's just like, wow. Um, (laughs) But when when these cuneiform tablets were translated, it really did cause quite a controversy because there's things in these stories that were... Earth-shaking, essentially, and I'll reveal them as I, as I come to them in the story. So, the first myth I'm going to talk about is um, it's we know it as the Epic of Creation, but it's actually called the Enuma Elish, and. It's called that because that's the first two words of the poem. And I also heard that like they had libraries in Sumeria and in the libraries on each shelf, they had, you know, the different documents, whatever they were. And beside each shelf, they had a little tablet again, which told you, which categorized what was on that shelf. And the way they categorized it was by writing the first two words maybe it was two or three words of each uh text each tablet that was on that um on that shelf so that's how they would have found it so they're you know quite organized um so anyway this myth i mean these these myths are really worth reading but i'm just gonna give um a brief summary of them because i mean they're incredibly interesting but also these myths Themes within them are are very similarly reflected in the ancient Greek mythology. So, um, yeah, how much did the Greeks get from them is, yeah, it's a very interesting question. So anyway, I'll just, I'll start off. So the first, the Epic of Creation begins in a time where there is nothing. There is nothing. It says like, um, in a time where n- the names of gods were not pronounced when when nothing existed. And there's this emphasis on pronunciation, like the names of the gods were not pronounced. So like throughout this this myth, there's 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 talk of gods and these kind of magical powers that they have through simply pronouncing things, which is, you know, it's 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 uh it's it's quite an abstract story. Um and it it has really enigmatic lines which are very tantalizing like um i'll, I'll just get into it <laughs> so it it as i said it begins in a time where there was nothing and then the two primordial gods um one was called tiamat what was the other one called um anu or something like this anyway there's so many names uh, of these gods I I, I can't I haven't re- I read this story twice for this episode but yeah there's a lot of names so I haven't remembered them all but anyway these two primordial gods they then give birth to other gods um and then there's like this first generation of gods and they're they're all existing in this abstract kind of godly realm we don't really know what kind of form they take um the the the, the poem is very as i'm saying kind of brief on description it's a bit like the bible very very brief on description, so it's it's totally, um, it's it's ripe for artistic interpretation <laughs> of uh, of these of these uh, descriptions. But um, so there's a first generation um, pronounced into existence, and then sometime later there's another generation, um, once again begotten somehow, and it's it's curious that. After a while the first generation start complaining to the to the primordial gods those two um that the, the next generation are very noisy. <laughs> this is a complaint that is throughout the myths of Mesopotamia, that this second generation, the new one, they're too noisy, and there's just maybe too many of them, and just, they just can't sleep. The first generation can't sleep because of the noise, right? This is something that it goes all the way through it. And so they go to Tiamat and the other one, And they say, please, look, these are just wrecking our heads. (laughs) We have no peace. We can't sleep. They're too noisy. Can we, it was a bad idea to make them. Can we please just wipe them out? Because it's, they're just unbearable. And then Tiamat is like, no, no way. Like, these are my offspring. There's no way I am going to kill them. I created them. So not a chance. You have to tolerate them and, you know, get on with them. And uh, the gods are the first generation. They're kind of, you know, oh dammit, like, we have to put up with these people or these these beings. But then one of them, his name was Apsu, I think, he he is defiant and he says, you know what, I don't care about her permission. I'm going to hatch a plan to kill this other generation without uh, her permission. And so they make a plan and then someone from the second generation uh, hears about this plan and then goes back and informs the first generation. And so... Um, then what happens is to stop the first generation's plan of destroying the second generation, one of the um, second generation goes and puts the this guy Apsu in a, in a deep sleep and then they they kill him and then it it's bizarre like it's it's so abstract this uh, this poem. that's why it's really worth reading, really worth like spending time like pondering on what these lines mean because when they killed this guy Apsu, they made they made a kind of a, a dwelling and they lived in the 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 who was it again the god and his wife or whatever lived in this the this realm created from the dead body of uh, this other of this apsu guy and then because apsu had been killed when tiamat the primordial goddess or god heard about this she was enraged i'm calling her a she i think she's a she anyway um she was enraged and then she took it upon herself to wipe out the second generation because she was so mad that they had killed maybe she didn't know why uh they killed maybe she didn't know about his plan you know so um the strife has begun the confusion <laughs> has begun in, in life um so then she hatches a plan and then once again, the second generation, they hear about this plan and then they are planning, Like, what are they going to do? And then like this Tiamat creates these um, these weapons, which are like many headed snakes and they're they're um, they're they don't have blood in their body. They just have venom. There's in, really interesting descriptions. And then she creates these other eleven creatures for her army so then so then the other side, if I heard about this uh, um, this army that she 's created, and then they, they um, their their best god called Marduk um, claims that he he 's going to be able to confidently defeat this uh, army and just on the name of Marduk, like, I remember when I was a kid playing video games and stuff, like, I don't know which games it was now, but... And I think it was in more than one, but I, I remember this name Marduk from when I was a kid. Like, you know, when you're playing the game and you're there's, there's highest scores in the games or whatever, and w- when you get to that screen on the game where you can see the highest score, I always remember this, coming across this name Marduk. <laughs> and I was always like... I think it was in different games that's why it stood out to me. I was like, "Why the hell is this who is this Marduk person who's always the highest score in these different computer games?" But anyway, so he was the he was the kind of most powerful god of the second generation. Um so yeah, it's just interesting that those game creators put his name in there. But anyway, so um in order to um, show his power to his uh, fellow second generation gods, for example, he's going to flex and he says to them, you see that constellation over there? I'm going to recite some words, some in, like a magic incantation, and that whole constellation is going to disappear. And then I'm going to say some more words and it's going to come back. And he does this and they're all impressed. You know, there's really crazy interesting things going on in this story so it's totally worth a reading Um, and so anyway he goes and he starts the fight with Tiamat and he catches her in a net I don't know it's not really clear what her form looks like or anything you know but anyway he catches her in a net and then he shoots an arrow and it goes into her her heart Uh, and then he smashes her head with like a mace and then the myth is that The two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are the two rivers in Mesopotamia, they flowed from her eyes like tears. So the kind of mythology kind of describes the landscape. Um, And then when she was dead, he he cut her in two and he used one half of her to hold up the sky. And in the story, once once this battle has taken place, Everything it starts to become a bit more down to earth. It's not so abstract anymore because now he is literally this guy Marduk is literally making the earth. One second. So um like for example, this this other god that was called Apsu, he becomes it seems to be like the underground, the underworld. Um and the other half of uh, of Tiamat has become like the Sumerians, I think, believed that the sky was actually like a solid uh, covering that had holes in it that that which allowed um, the sea above to fall through sometimes. That was what their conception of rain was. So anyway. All the other gods then are are like so delighted that um, Marduk has saved them and they want to praise him. And they say, what can we do to praise you? And he says, "Um, go down and make me a temple and, um, you know, you can you can praise me in there. Um, And so the the gods go down to earth themselves and they begin this work Um, and then. Here is where the story starts to overlap with the next story that I'm going to get into in a few minutes. Because the, the gods, are, first of all, um, go down to earth and start making this, this uh, temple, which is called a ziggurat. ziggurat. Um, and it's it's been kind of theorized that, I mean, these ziggurats are in um, this area. And there has been theories that these are actually what i mean they were quite big structures for that, that time so there's theories that these were what um the tower of babel story is actually based on but anyway that's jumping the gun here a bit skipping ahead so i'll just uh, <laughs> but it's worthwhile mentioning so anyway another thing um this guy marduk did when when he um when he won the battle he created new constellations to honor the gods that were on his side so uh once again this myth kind of explains not just kind of geological, geographical things, but also constellations. They're built into the story. Um, so anyway, so now the, these gods are on the earth and they're building these, um, these uh, temples. And then to relieve the gods from their labor, they decide to create a primeval man. I think they called him Adam. Adam, meaning something i've actually heard that the word adam in that language it referred to red clay this was something that's in the text like the footnotes for the text i was reading often the footnote is explaining a pun how the word used also sounds very similar like another word that is very appropriate for that particular sentence as well and in the name adam as I'm saying, apparently it refers to red clay, which is the red clay that they use to make everything. Um, it also referred to, oh, what was it, uh, to to blood. And I think it also, or if there was something else, maybe it was just this uh, earthling man that they created. Um, anyway, that's just a little, um, I'm just pointing out there was lots of puns, uh. It's quite poetic um, going on in this text. Anyway, so they create these proto-humans out of some clay mixed with um, blood of, I think, Tiamat himself. But then Tiamat said, or sorry, not Tiamat, Marduk, he says, which was the god who incited Tiamat to uh, kill us in the first place? And... Uh they the other gods name who that god was, and he says, Bring him to me, and we're gonna sacrifice him and use his blood um mixed with clay to make these proto-humans, to make these uh early early man. And so in it in the story they say very briefly, like it is impossible to describe the deed of creation. Um uh, anyway, but there there you have it. So that's this is why. Humans were created to do the work (laughs) of uh, building these uh, temples uh, and giving the gods their food and doing all the labor for the the gods. And and then at the end of that story, um, it basically ends with... um, the 50 different names through which Marduk was was known and all of his kind of qualities and characteristics. And then we can go into the next story, um, which is called Atrahasis. And this story is is it's kind of starting off where the last one ended, because it starts off by saying, um, in the time when the gods did the work instead of man, um, the work was very hard for the gods. And, and actually, the gods who were doing this work were a kind of a secondary... Um, I don't know what they... It's actually not very clear. I've looked into this and it's not very clear because, because this the for example, these two texts, they overlap, but they kind of tell the story a bit differently. So um, what I'm saying is there was a kind of a second group of uh, gods called the Igigi, and these were the gods that were down on earth making or doing all the work. And then there was another god, the, the other another kind of bunch of gods, who were known as the Anunnaki, and they were the kind of rulers, and and they you know they were organizing everything. And what happened was the Igigi were for apparently three thousand six hundred years. It says in the text they were doing all of the labor, all of the hard labor, and it was really difficult and eventually they go on strike they break their weapons and they go to um they go to the the canal constructor advisor because they uh you know the fertile crescent is famous for its uh, canals which um kind of what's the word irrigate and bring water from the river into land further away from the river so that it can be farmed um what's it so after a very long time of these Igigi gods doing all the work, they revolt and they say this work is too hard. And they go to the house or the building of uh, this uh, uh, overseer, one of the Anunnaki. And they basically, <laughs> there's a description of it, like uh, the kind of guard sees what's going on. All of these, uh, they're surrounding the building and he goes inside and he tells um, he tells this uh this God, like they're all here, they're all rebelling, they're not working, they're complaining. And then He says, Go back out and ask them what's going on. Why are they, who, who's responsible for this? And then the servant kind of goes out and says, Who among you is the leader of this group and whose idea was this? And they all say, It is all of our ideas. We all uh, feel the same. We're all sick of this. And then the guy goes back in and tells the God, uh, and, yeah, interestingly, when the god first hears that th- this group has come, he says to the other guy, get your weapons. So they have weapons. Um, yeah, so they seem like quite human, like they have to eat and they complain about uh, not sleeping. So, yeah, they're very human kind of characteristics, but seemingly they are immortal. Anyway, um, so so when this god hears the complaints of the egigi, he actually cries because... He knows that the work has been hard. And then he goes and he calls a council of the other Anunnaki. Um, and interestingly, he says they come from the sky. And there's there's other um, Anunnaki who, who come from below the ground in the place called Apsu. So, you know, this mythology is just really, um, really interesting. <laughs> it's totally, once again, this other second myth is totally worth the read. Um, so what happens then is When this God is like, okay, you know what? And when the other gods come down, they all say, yes, look, we knew that the work was too hard for them. We can't blame them for revolting because yes, we've known it's terrible. And and yet they did it for this long. So then immediately the original God that I mentioned, he says, we must make a sacrifice. And so he kind of directs this kind of womb goddess to uh, go and create Uh, early man, uh, primeval man. And they do this by sacrificing a a god um, to use his blood to mix it with um, clay, once again, as they say. (laughs) And like, there's these enigmatic um, little phrases, like I think the room where this is made where this happens is called the room of destiny or the room of fate or something like this once again there's just too many enigmatic tantalizing lines in the in the story for me to have remembered them all but <laughs> this is why i'm saying if you read the, read it yourself it, it's just as i'm saying it's so ripe for artistic uh filling in of the gaps anyway so so then they decide to make this kind of um Quasi god thing, which is in the in the end, it's it's man, um, and there's a description of how this womb goddess makes makes the um, the process of kind of a uh, making these this early man, and then when it is created, she holds this man up in her hands, and she's like, "I have created life," <laughs> um, like a like a Frankenstein moment. But um so then. So then these early humans are, are created and they do the work. And then the gods are like free of their hard labor. And what happens then, the story then says, so 600 years passes. And these humans that don't die, they live extremely long lives. Um, it's kind of like in the Bible, once again, because in the early books of the Bible, the humans lived like 900 years and stuff. So... um. This yeah, the humans, it says, were working for 600 years and then they became just there was just too many of them because they were, you know, having kids and they were living really long. So once again, the gods started complaining to um to the kind of overseer down there on Earth they start complaining that these humans are too noisy. So it's, quite, it's kind of similar to the other one where the other gods were complaining about the second generation of, of gods. So they're saying that these humans, there's too many of them and they're too noisy and I can't sleep. <laughs> this is actually what they say in the story. Um, and, so, and so he says, can we, please, um, can we please do something about this? And the god agrees to unleash a, a a virus like a like a disease and this kind of diminishes the population and then it introduces the character of Atrahasis Atrahasis and that's the name of this poem and Atrahasis it says is special among man because he still has the ability to hear and speak with the gods he's the only one who can do this and so this guy Atrahasis goes and Pleads with the god and says, You know, we can't bear this. Why are you doing this to us? Please stop this. And then um, the god hears uh, Atrahasis and he. He says okay right maybe maybe you're right maybe we shouldn't kill them all um or maybe we've killed enough and then he tells atrahasis to go and tell the elders of of man to tell all of their people to stop working and to revolt and to then go to the temple of a particular god can't remember his name uh, but to bring a bread offering and when you bring the bread offering despite all of the suffering that's going on that us gods have inflicted on you, when you bring this bread offering to this god, he will be shamed and then he will take pity on you and then he will stop the plague. And so that's what happens. And then humans are just... The the plague is gone and they're working again. And then it goes, another 600 years pass, and the same thing happens. That there's too many of them again. And then this time... It's like a famine is is released, like the, the, I think it doesn't rain and the ground becomes too dry and foods, um, you know, they're not growing. And then the same thing happens again. This guy Atrahasis goes and pleads. And then the same thing happens again. The god takes pity and then he tells him what to do, revolt and go to a different god, bring a different offering and he will stop the plague or he will stop the famine. And then... Like this happens a few times because then it goes once Atrahasis does this and then another 600 years pass, too many of them again. And then it's like they release the the plague and they introduce um, child mortality into the situation as well. And then the same thing happens again. And then it's another 600 years. And then the same thing happens again. (laughs) And um, I think the final one is... um, it's like a mixture of everything. It's like there's there's plague and there's famine, and it talks about how like something like five or six years goes by, and like they, they they the people have no food. the The grain stores have all uh, been uh, emptied, and now people are even turning to cannibalism. And the gods once again. They, they're all arguing amongst themselves, like, what are we going to do? And the text is unfortunately a bit fragmented, like it's missing quite a lot of lines in places. Um, so it's kind of interesting that these missing lines may actually still be found one day, uh, hopefully, you know, in the future, because uh, although apparently it's difficult to get for these... Uh, I mean, Iraq is the area where this all took place and it's quite a war-torn area. So, um, yeah, so it's it's difficult maybe for archaeologists to get over there to try and look for these things. But anyway, um, so I'm just saying, saying that this text is quite fragmented in places. Mm. So it's kind of exciting that maybe we might get the missing lines because... In particular, in this part of the story, I remember when they're describing how they've been going through famine for years and they're all like hunched over and their their like faces have all scabs on them and stuff like this. And then it, there's an enigmatic line. Once again, it says it goes, they survived by and then it's like dot 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 tech, The text is missing <laughs> and you don't know how they survived. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, so there's quite a few sections where there's around this section, there's missing mm, quite large sections. And then the gods are arguing amongst themselves. And there seems to be some complaint going on between the, maybe the Anunnaki and the Agigi about some oath that was broken between them. And it's not very clear what's going on. And then lions are missing and then the gods are still arguing and they're still arguing and lines are missing. And then it's like, boom, one of the gods says, OK, you know what? We've done this many times. These bloody humans, (laughs) they keep on growing back like bloody rabbits. So you know what? We are going to wipe them out with a flood. So when this story was translated, um, when the Sumerian language was first, you know, translated in something like 1850, this was like holy shit, like this is like, um, this is a text that is way before the Bible, way before the flood in the Bible. And here we have another civilization talking about the flood in part of their mythology. So this is what I'm saying was like earth shaking um, when these texts were uh, first translated. So to get back to the story... um, all of them are supposed to be wiped out the gods decide to wipe all of them out um but one of the gods i think it was called ia takes pity on um on atrahasis and through a dream he actually informs uh, atrahasis what's going to happen and he tells him to build an ark and he describes how to build it and um, he says, take your family and I'll bring all of the animals, two of everything from, from the whole world, put it on board. And then it. this flood is going to come. It's going gonna to last like seven days. And then you send out like, you know, different birds at different times to see if they come back or not. And if they don't come back, that means then the, it's over and soon you'll be able to open up your ark and let all the animals out and repopulate everything. So once again, here you have it. Another text thousands of years before the bible and it's essentially noah's ark and the flood um so what happens is in the story um the flood happens all the humans are wiped out except for atrahasis and his family and then just shortly before the flood ends one of the gods who was responsible for this flood spots the the ark and he's like what the who the <laughs> who Who told, how is this possible? How does this guy know that the flood was coming? How did he build an ark? Um, And he's really mad at the Igigi, apparently. I think Ea was one of the Igigi who took pity on uh, Atrahasis and saved him. And Ea uh, admits it and said, yes, I, I saved Atrahasis. I told him what to do in defiance of you because it's cruel. And anyway, so when the flood is over they they actually make atrahasis immortal uh to kind of just um yeah as a as a gift for for uh, surviving uh, basically and then what they do is because now the gods are faced with having to do all the work again themselves like for, for food and they com- i think there's even a complaint in the story that they don't have enough beer <laughs> the beer is all gone because the humans aren't, aren't doing the farming and stuff um So then what happens is the gods are like, okay, right, those humans that we met, they were problematic. They lived too long. Um, So this time we're going to make another version of of these humans to do the work for us. But this time we're going to design them so that their lives are much shorter and that there's going to be child mortality going on in a certain percentage of them. And there's going to be the disease constantly going around, keeping their numbers down as well. And even some of the women, they're going to have to live near the temples and so that they have to be celibate. They're not allowed to have kids. So uh, this is also going to help in population control. So, I mean, if you have never heard this story, I wonder, are you kind of like, whoa, (laughs) as I was when I when I first heard this story? Because it's just like It's it's so different from the Bible, let's say. Um, Anyway, so where am I in the story? So, yes, they create then the second mm, wave of humans, second generation of humans. And yeah, and now that's it. Humans, their lives are much shorter. And then this is where the next epic, the epic of Gilgamesh comes into it, because it says that, Gilgamesh was a great ruler um, in, I think it was actually the city of Uruk, I think is what they mentioned in the story. But so the next, this epic is all about man coming to terms with his mortality, with his shortened life, uh, lifespan. And this story is actually quite long. It's the longest in the book uh, I think what is it ooh i can 't recall it 's like maybe sixty pages or something like that. i can 't recall exactly now, but it 's much longer than these other two ones that i 've um been talking about i don 't know how long i 'm gone on here now, but anyway um so i 'll try do it briefly but but once again, these are so worth reading just because they 're so yeah like i 'm saying they're they 're very short on details so they're, as i'm saying they 're completely um great Uh, stories for artistic interpretation and I I will say this um, if you've ever seen the film Prometheus by Ridley Scott that seems to me to be totally coming from these myths of Mesopotamia because if you've seen that film at the start of Prometheus you have a god I mean it's a brilliant film if you haven't seen it totally check it out um, has Michael Fassbender in it and Charlize Theron uh, among other people but um, in at the start of that film there's this god uh, creature which I ref- he's referred to as the architect he's one of the architects who is said to have created humanity that's what that film is all about and he sacrifices himself and he seeds life on earth it seems so um and even the the second it's actually the prequel it's called a- alien i think it's called alien covenant it's the next film in the prometheus well it's an alien the alien franchise but um it's it's set before prometheus and there's a similar theme i, I won't spoil it but um there's a similar theme going on in that film, which is uh reflected in um once again the epics of Sumeria and and in the ancient Greek um mythology because Prometheus is the god in the Greek mythology from the I think it's from it's from the second generation, which were called the Olympians, and the first generation were called the Titans, and it's it's prometheus who gave fire to man so that they and he taught them all the arts and civilization and then prometheus was uh punished by the gods for doing this um so yeah i'm just uh saying that this film by ridley scott to me i think it's quite clear that um he's used like as i'm saying these sumerian texts are um yeah it would be a lot of fun to uh make an artistic interpretation of them or even just based on them and it seems like Rid- Ridley Scott for one has already done that fantastically <laughs> in those two films um but apparently I haven't seen them well I saw one but years ago the the planet of the Apes films I think it's the similar thing um I I I believe it's a similar theme going on there but anyway so to get back to the epic of Gilgamesh. Um, so Gilgamesh is this, it's actually mentioned that he is two-thirds God and one-third man. So he's this great ruler. He's like a giant. and uh, But he's a bit of a pig. <laughs> he's this uh, uh, like almighty ruler of of Uruk, I think it is. And But the people don't really like him because he's a bit of a pig. And like he would do things like when a new couple is getting married he actually the the wife to be has to come to his bed first before she can even be with her new husband so the the people didn't like this and eventually the people prayed to the gods of Mes- of sumeria to st- please stop this and uh please you know bring someone who's an equal to this brute gilgamesh to try and you know uh humanize him, essentially. Uh, and so the gods hear the people's plea and they create in the wild among the animals another giant being called Enkidu. And he is, yeah, he's he's like an equal, but he's a total animal. He's he's not civilized. He doesn't live, live among men. And the story goes that there was these two hunters who happened out in the wild. They came across this Enkidu guy and they they were like terrified at how big he was and how strong he was and they and they went and uh, eventually someone advised them to go and tell gilgamesh uh what's going on with this with this creature and gilgamesh says you have to take a harlot which is like a prostitute <laughs> and you have to bring her to this enkidu guy and she will be presented to him and she will, you know, (laughs) uh, what way way did they say it? Uh, Bear herself to him in her nakedness and she will teach him the woman's arts. It's kind of like a, um, it's about basically trying to civilize this, this uh, wild Enkidu who ran with the gazelle and all the different animals. He was able to get on with them. And, So she does this and it takes it takes like a week of her apparently making love to him uh, or the other way around. And eventually then he is taught the kind of ways of civilization and he's introduced to bread and he's introduced to wine because these are the customs of the land. And then he goes to and he's he's introduced to uh, Gilgamesh. And the way he does this is. Gilgamesh is trying to go through a door and Enkidu blocks him with his leg and the two of them have a big fight. And then Gilgamesh realizes, oh, my, like this guy is like me. Um, And so they become best friends. Um, And just to point it out as well, in this uh, epic of Gilgamesh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh have dreams, and these dreams are always very important. Um, And this is kind of something that goes on in the Greek culture as well. The interpretation of of dreams are very, uh, like, you know, life and death almost. But anyway, um, so Gilgamesh and Enkidu are now uh, friends, and they decide to go to um, the cedar land, which is like cedar is a type of tree, because... um, it's it's uh, what can I say about that? Well, Mesopotamia didn't have a lot of wood for building, apparently. It was just mostly clay, <laughs> apparently. So in what's now called Lebanon it was this uh, land of cedar trees, and so I think this is something that the Sumerians had to import all the time, and so this is why they kind of enshrined it in their mythology, that they had to go to the cedar forest. And they say that there was a, a god living among the among the cedar forest called Humbaba, and um, Enkidu, who was an animal, had encountered this ferocious Humbaba. He's he's kind of described as being somewhat kind of like elephant like or something. Um, and so, yeah, so Enkidu is saying to Gilgamesh, you know, I've seen this guy; he's a beast. I don't think we should do it. And Enk- and Gilgamesh is all pride and honor, and he says, no, you know, we are. Formidable, we have to go and do this. And so they go and they actually do meet him and they conquer him. And then they bring back their cedar trees. And then when they return, there's a, I think she's a a goddess. Maybe she's kind of like Enkidu. Uh, No, I think she's a goddess uh, who, who asks for Gilgamesh's hand in marriage. And, but, but Gilgamesh knows this woman and he lists all of the previous guys who had been with this woman and how they all ended up in a terrible way because she basically ruined their lives. (laughs) And um, so she refuses or he refuses to marry her. And then she is really annoyed by this. And then she prays to her or she asks her uh, parents who are gods to do something about this. And she says, bring down the bull of heaven to, um, you know, to give this guy his comeuppance for uh, dismissing me, for denying me my his hand in marriage with me. And so this bull um, comes down. And coincidentally, this bull is representative of the constellation of Taurus, because Taurus is a, is a bull. And it's interesting that this whole Sumerian civilization begins with the Taurus mountains in eastern Turkey. I wonder. Uh, anyway, um, so... So what happens is this bull comes down and it says like, um, once again, these things are so worth reading just because of the interesting description. It says this bull comes down and he, he snorts and with his first snort, he like cracks the earth and he kills 200 men. And with his second, he does the same. And with his third, he knocks over even Enkidu. And then Enkidu boasts to Gilgamesh, look, Gilgamesh this is our chance you wanted to have a formidable challenge now is your chance so he jumps on the bull and uh, he kind of grabs him by the neck and then he tells Gilgamesh to stick a knife or a sword into the nape of his neck and then they kill the bull (laughs) and then in in another display of sheer uh, defiance uh, Enkidu pulls off the leg of the bull and throws it at um, the goddess who who brought down the bull in the first place and said something like uh, this is what I would do to you if I could get my hands on you and it's a coincidence that apparently the constellation of Taurus in the sky is apparently missing one leg and <laughs> this is the this is how the myth accounts for that missing leg I haven't looked at the constellation of Taurus now <sighs> off the top of my head I can't picture it so well whether it is missing a leg or not but i I, i'll check it up after this i guess but um that's just interesting and anyway so then um so then uh what happens next in the story oh yeah and so then as a way of punishing um these two gods who are uh so powerful now, the gods decide that one of these two best friends Enkidu and Gilgamesh, one of them has to die let's get a drink and so they eventually decide that it should be Enkidu who is going to die and what happens is he's given a kind of a sickness and he's just in bed and he's just withering away in bed and he's totally miserable and Enkidu or Gilgamesh is totally heartbroken and he's telling him like how we're all going to mourn for you and I'm going to grow my hair long apparently was a sign of mourning and um yeah and poor Gilgamesh is heartbroken and eventually Enkidu dies and um I think there's more dreams that are interpreted around this section. And then Enkidu says, like, he mourns for him for um, seven days until the worm comes from his nose. And, and then he decides, OK, right, he's actually dead. I better accept this. <laughs> and um, and then Gilgamesh is distraught with the fact that he too is probably going to die. So then he decides to go on a quest for immortality. And this quest is to find a guy called Upnapishtim. And maybe I'll reveal who he is when I get to it rather than now. So this guy Upnapishtim is apparently going to be able to help Gilgamesh out with the old problem of uh, of mortality. So there's just an amazing description of the distance traveled that Gilgamesh has to go through in order to to come to the area where this um, uh, Upnapishtim lives. When I first heard it, I was just like, I was like, what are they trying to say? Like, what? It's once again, it's a bit abstract. Um, I have heard theories, which I'm not really going to go into in this. Um, I've been aware of these theories for a long time, actually, but in relation to uh, the Anunnaki and so on, but, um, yeah, when I heard this description, it was just, um, I mean, if you read the story or you can even listen to it as an audio book, there's quite a few, even on YouTube, there's audio books of this story. I totally recommend it. Um, but, um, yeah, just this section was very, once again, enigmatic and tantalizing. Those are definitely the two words that I would use most to describe this uh, these, these stories because the lines are so... Um, interesting like i forgot to mention but in the first myth that i described um the guy marduk he he was wearing these things called the tablets of destiny and he had to wear them on his chest and he took them from the other god who had um what's the word kind of like unrightfully took them from someone else so yeah it's just very enigmatic this these uh, myths anyway so Gilgamesh goes on his massive long voyage through darkness. It says he goes through 12 leagues of darkness and, um, and then eventually he comes to this, uh, he comes to this area where he has to cross a sea. And then eventually he's, I think he meets one person and then he meets another one. And this person tells him to construct a boat and they sail across the sea. And, uh, he eventually arrives at this guy, Upnapishtim. And Upnapishtim is a guy who was granted immortality by the gods because he was the only person who survived the flood. So as I'm saying, these stories, like they they, they kind of overlap and they tell the same story, but sometimes with different uh, in different ways and with different names. Because this guy, Upnapishtim, is... Atrahasis from the other story and then um, what happens when he meets Gilgamesh he's, he sees that Gilgamesh has traveled a long way and his face is all burnt from the sun and from the cold and he looks hungry and all this kind of stuff and he actually says he Gilgamesh explains why he came there because his friend he saw his friend die and he doesn't want to have the same fate. he wants to be immortal like open the Pishtim and Up the Piston tells him, you know, you just can't do it. You cannot be immortal. And I I think he says something like, "Okay, you know what? If you want to be like me, all you have to do is stay awake for seven days, and then you will be like me." But (laughs) Gilgamesh has gone through this whole ordeal of getting there, and uh, he says that he has he has lost acquaintance with the sweetness of sleep. Is a phrase that I'm remembering, and um. But yet when he arrives and he hears this uh, proposition from Upnipishtim that all he has to do is stay awake. He actually, unfortunately, he says, OK, I'm going to do this. But then like basically immediately falls asleep because he's just absolutely wrecked. And, um, and then um, Upnipishtim says, you know what, all men are liars. And when he wakes up, he's going he's gonna to try and complain or say it wasn't fair or something or it didn't really fall asleep for so long. But so he tells his wife to bake bread each day and leave it beside his head as proof that when he wakes up, because he'll see the moldy bread, you know, uh, bread from the last seven days gradually um, getting more expired beside his head. And um, so then, sure enough, he wakes up and he can't believe that he was asleep for seven days. And um, then um, Upanapishtim kind of takes pity on Gilgamesh and... Again, there's just this really uh, enigmatic, tantalizing sentence where he says, we refreshed the fillet in his head. I think they say in his forehead. So it's like, what the hell? <laughs> what the... F- does that mean? So, yeah, really, really uh, interesting. They, they they revived or refreshed the fillet in his head. Like, what is that? It's like, is that. you know, you think of things like the pineal gland or something you know it's just really really interesting and just I'm, i forgot to say it but just another one of my kind of favorite and en- enigmatic lines from when i heard this the first time was when they are the two of them are back in the forest with uh humbaba and they conquer humbaba and then they are between two minds as we- as to whether they should kill him or not um they're debating this and en- enkidu says oh but if we kill him Suddenly, chicks, like little birds, are introduced into the discussion. And he says, if we kill him, the chicks will scatter and we won't know where they are. And then en- and then Gilgamesh says, oh, it's fine. Yes, they will scatter, but we will find them later. It's just like, what the? <laughs> like, this is why I, I love it, because it's so like there's definitely something there. And uh, there's definitely that's definitely symbolic of something, and I just love the kind of uh it's it's so brief but yet it's so enigmatic and tantalizing and i I just think it has to refer to something um anyway back uh back to uh to where I was and um yeah, so I was saying yeah about the fillet in his forehead and and then and then open the pistem says, you know what, okay, I feel sorry for you. So I'm actually going to tell you about a, a, a secret plant. And this is a secret from the gods. They told me and now I'm going to tell you. So there's actually this secret plant that is that grows on the bottom of this sea over there. I'll just tell you where it is. And if you go down and you get that, yes, it's going to prick your hand. Obviously, it has kind of pricks on it. But if you bear that pain and if you bring it back up to the surface and if you eat it, I think it will like rejuvenate you. I don't know if it. I can't remember now if it gives you immortality, but I think it will rejuvenate you. So um, Gilgamesh is like, okay, great, that'll that'll do. That's that sounds great. And so he says he's going to do this, and he goes down, and he he does, he gets it. And what happens is, when he's back up on the land, I think it is. He's saying like, this is brilliant. I'm going to give this to the old people in, back in my city and then I'll eat it myself as well when I'm getting old to, revi- to rejuvenate myself. This is brilliant. And then, again, as another kind of a parallel with another culture, which in this case is the Christian culture or the uh, Jewish culture, as Gilgamesh has this rejuvenating plant Um, in his hand, a snake comes and grabs it out of his hand so that that is it. He has lost the snake, then, you know, disappears and goes off. And he says, Gilgamesh says, that's it. I had my chance. I had this plant and I've lost it. So it's just interesting that the snake kind of is this, you know, symbolic creature that steals, like in the Bible, the snake tricks um, Adam and Eve into eating the apple and then they're banished from from the Garden of Eden. Um, it's interesting that this snake in the Sumerian mythology is the one responsible for undoing the kind of mm, maybe Eden-like longevity of life. So, you know, it's just uh, very interesting that these myths are so much older than the Bible, because apparently the Bible was only begun to be written down around the 8th century BC. And these myths are from a few thousand years before then. Um, But this is something that I'm going to be... I'm definitely going to do another episode on the Bible and... um, yeah, because it kind of overlaps. It's it's in this Mesopotamian area, the Fertile Crescent. So uh, I'm definitely going to do an episode on them as well. Um, so the story then ends with Gilgamesh going back to his city. And coincidentally, the story, like most epics, it's a characteristic of an epic poem that the story ends where it actually begun But the main character has now a completely changed perspective. Um, Yeah, because he's back once again uh, in his city of Uruk. And now he's kind of like, he's kind of okay with the fact that he's going to die. And um, there's even a a point in it where one of the, I think it was the wife of Upnapishtim who tells him, you know, you know drink wine and be merry and wear fresh clothes and you know take care of your wife and be just you know be happy with what you have and so gilgamesh is now a much more humanized ruler and he now is able to take sympathy on on the people that he's ruling and he becomes a good leader because of this whole Epic that he epic voyage and friendship that he went on, Um, and so and there you are, and he's and then he becomes a good ruler as to as to oppose as opposed to how he was at the start, Um, and so there you are. There's a kind of a summary of the main three uh, myths from uh, Mesopotamia. And yeah, I have this book called Myths of Mesopotamia from the Oxford World Classics. And in it is quite a good few other myths. I haven't actually read them yet. But um, so, yeah, I just totally recommend this book. And uh, yeah, as I'm saying, yes, I've given summaries of these stories, but they're really worth spending a bit of time with um, just because they're very mysterious. (laughs) And it's like when I was reading it, it was just like, I was just like, my God, like, I am reading something here that was only discovered in roughly, you know, 18 something. And for how many centuries was it completely lost to the world? And this is the story that someone 4,000, 3,000 years ago would have, you know, would have been everything to them. So, yeah, it was just um, quite an amazing, like, like I said, I had read the um, epic of Gilgamesh, actually, I was in work and I actually listened to it as an audio book while I was in work, which in a way is quite appropriate because these epic poems like the Epic of uh, Gilgamesh and like Homer in Greek culture, his epic poems, they would have all been sung. They would have all been sung like the guy would have had a musical instrument and he would have like sung them all. Um, although I think some parts were kind of said and then the more dramatic parts were, were sung, but, uh, it which is a remarkable feat of memory because like Homer's books, for example, they're like, you know, 300 pages long, 400 pages long. How could someone remember? I mean, I was, I, I just kind of, you know, reread those stories twice each and then the Epic, epic of Gilgamesh as well. And you know, that was more or less the best that I, I could do after two revisions. Um, so to be able to memorize the whole thing in great detail, I guess. Yeah, maybe if I. Yeah, maybe it is possible, but you got to put a lot of work into it. But anyway, where was I going with this? Um, oh, yeah, I was just saying that um, I had listened to the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh first. Um, went on a few tangents there. Looks looks like I'm about to stop in the train station because that train of thought has left me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, can't remember now where I was going with that, but um, what you going to do? As I said, I'm still doing this thing live. I just press record and I and it's it's quite um, like, you know, I do all the reading and all the researching and then it's like. It's like pressing play is like stepping into the ring. Because <laughs> uh, once again, this is the the first time I'm doing this recording. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 you know, it's like those uh, it's like those fighters say it's like the fight is won or lost before you go into the ring, depending on whether you had done the sufficient training or whatever anyway um so yeah, I think um think that went well, <laughs> uh anyway, yeah, so there you are, amazing, amazing stories that were absolutely earth shaking um because they yeah they i mean the flood mythology, noah, um completely different versions as to why humanity was created in the first place, um you know yeah. So I, I think I can kind of leave it off there now. Um the Epic of Creation, the Enuma Elish, the Atrahasis, and then the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, amazing, amazing stories. Um, so once again, before I sign off here, um lots more episodes in mind to do, really enjoying this. Um yeah, it's just a lot of fun to put myself to the test after I've, you know, engaged with some text to see if I can... Because as I was saying in, like, the intro of this series, you you only really understand something if you're able to explain it even to yourself. And that's kind of what I enjoy doing here. But, yeah, these things I think are really interesting. So if other people want to hear them as well, and if they like them, well, then that's great. And, um, yeah, like, the thing is... Um, I, I said this, I'm only saying this in the last few episodes because um, I wasn't even sure if I could keep this going. But now I really do think I could uh, really enjoy it. But um, so, yeah, once again, if you have liked this, um, it would mean I would like really, really appreciate it if you if you like this, if you shared it on your social media so that other people might be able to hear it. Because, yeah, I would love to uh, grow this into, uh, yeah, the more followers, um, yeah, th- I mean, w- why not? That would be cool. Um, I'm enjoying doing this if it, it would just be kind of like um, a sign that maybe I'm doing something right <laughs> if people are actually liking this. So, yeah, so I'm just saying if you like it, please share it. It would help me out because, yeah, it would be great if, um, if as I said in another episode, if someone actually would like this enough to uh, go onto my Patreon and like give the you know price of a coffee or a beer once a month to show kind of a you know if you listen to these things um, you know I do put a lot of effort into them I enjoy doing them myself but um, you know I'm putting myself out there and I'm um, trying my best to talk about the things um, that I'm reading. Um, to just kind of to spread it, because I think it's good. As I'm saying, I listen to podcasts and uh, I learn so much from them. So my one is completely just by myself. I don't have any support, no kind of organization. You know, a lot of this is the thing about independent podcasters. Like, um, basically, if I got support, I would be able to do this more and I'm also, as I said in another episode, I'm also an artist and I'm working on writing projects at the moment. And this is basically where I kind of want to go with my life. Um, I studied art. I would love to um, make a kind of a, a living out of this stuff. Um, I have different things going on with visual art and with writing. And yeah, and with this thing is the is the latest. So, yeah, um, I mean, if you don't have a dream... Why complain? <laughs> what what's the point? You know, I do have a kind of a vision of how um how I could be living my most kind of uh, what's the word kind of a uh, fulfilling way of life, and it is possible. Podcasters, if their podcast is good enough, they do get enough of of a following, and then a certain percentage of their following are in a situation that is kind of like you know stable enough where they're able to just give the generous little bit of support uh, once a month if they, you know, might listen frequently. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's the whole, um, the whole um, please share or support <laughs> little uh, talk that I sh- I will have to include from now on. Um, so yeah, there you go. For me, these myths were like amazing. Um, and yeah, if you haven't seen... Once again, those films that I mentioned, um, The Quest for Fire, and yeah, I mentioned um, 2001 Space Odyssey also as being somewhat similar to The Quest of Fire at the start of it. And then Ridley Scott's Prometheus, and I think it was called Alien Covenant was the prequel to it. Anyway, yeah, so really amazing myths. Um, The Cradle of Civilization, it's where everything came from. When you're having a beer, you can thank the Sumerians for, uh, <laughs> for uh, giving you beer. All right, so that's it. I'm going to sign off here now. Hope that was uh, interesting. And I will... Oh, yeah. Also, if, um, if you're listening to this, I have a Facebook and Instagram please follow. And any feedback or comments on any episode, it would be cool to hear some kind of feedback and get maybe some kind of, you know, even a discussion going or something about something that was in one of the episodes or whatever. That would be really cool. Um, So yeah, if you liked it, say hi. And yeah, and I'm going to be working on the next episode. So yeah. Talk soon. Ciao, ciao.